This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, joined this week by only one co-host, Leah Leibowitz. But what a co-host it is. It's true. Mark Oppenheimer is in Pittsburgh reporting for his book about the aftermath of the Tree of Life shooting. That guy's a real overachiever. Or so he says. Mark <laughs> Oppenheimer could be, Pittsburgh. could be anywhere. Last week, we brought you Liel's interview with Donnie Dayan. He's Israel's consul general in New York. So this week, we figured it was a good time to bring you Mark's conversation with Carolyn Karsher. She is the editor of the collection Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. We also bring you a very fun and instructive conversation we had with Amy Fish, author of I Wanted Fries With That, How to Ask What You Want and Get What You Need. Liel, you were not in on that conversation. I do not get to be in on the fun conversations. You already know how to ask what you want and get what you need. And and look at me. I've clearly (laughs) had fries with that, so no problem there. But Liel, what's going on? Dad's not here. What should we do? So first of all, I want to let you know that following the lead of the New York Times, I have decided to endorse both you and Mark as my co-hosts on even, this podcast. Even this week? This week, uh, I endorse both of you. Even though only one of us is here. I think you both put sensible paths forward for podcasting. Different directions, though. Different directions. If, if you want, you know, a father of five from Connecticut, Mark is a very good vote. If you want a Mahjong expert who is a cat ninja, uh, I think you're a terrific path forward for America. Thank you so much. I'm endorsing you both as my co-host. I am Mahjong 2020. Um, I have actually heard from a lot of people <laughs> who say they will host Mahjong parties in their cities. So let's like, I think I think we're sort of like building to a Mahjong episode, I think. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think something is really, really... I'm going to have to learn this by the time this year is over. Sure, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's such a <laughs> soothing game. So my mother-in-law, Wendy Cohen, is reordering the 2020 Mahjong card. And she asked if I wanted one. She said, they're $8 and she'll get me one. And I said... Yes. And she said, regular font or large font? Of course, and I was large. like, I don't know. I was like, well, give me regular. Oh, I mean, no. Come on. You I got know. You got to go full, full Jessica Fletcher and go and go the large <laughs> print. Amazing. So I'll, sh- I'll share that with you when I get that. Have you had any more practice instead? No, no. Just did it once. You're did getting, it once. You're getting rusty. One. Played with a partner on my team. Is there an app for that? I bet there is. I'm Someone sure, in the Facebook right? group said that they were once playing Mahjong on a computer when their parents came home and were like, are you playing Mahjong? He's <laughs> like, what? No, I was watching porn like a normal person. How dare you? But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's one of those like really intergenerational things. And we've heard from a lot of people. Super intergenerational. The 70-year-olds play it, the 80-year-olds, the 90-year-olds, all sorts of generations. Love it. We heard from Anne Marvie Hope. And she says, I'm a USY regional teen engagement director. And I can tell you, Midwest Jewish teens and tweens are obsessed with Maj. And it is played by all genders now. So I think that there's like a real res- a Mahjong resurgence. I want to be at the forefront of it. Having caught on, I think, 57, 80 years too late, but I'm still going to be I'm gonna be part of that revolution. I will follow you. The Majolution. I will follow you right there. I love that. It's not um, like I have anything else to do, like read a page of Talmud a day or something. While you're not reading a page of Talmud, I want to show you what I brought. It's this week's copy of WSJ Magazine. I stole it from someone in my building. I with Selena Gomez on the cover, which, by uh, the Selena way, the, Gomez. The, the, oh the Talmud never featured Selena Gomez. Well, that was, that was their big mistake. That's a marketing faux pas. In, in Tractate Bieber, they never did. So if you turn to this week's Wall Street Journal magazine, this handsome book that it is, if you turn to page 34, Stephanie, what, what do you see there? 
So it's their really fun feature. It's called the download. And basically each issue, they ask someone to like share what their phone looks like and what the things they use. This week, they featured Friend of the Pod and Food Network star Molly Yeh. Molly Yeh! And what's the first question in the second column that they ask her? Favorite podcast? And what is it that she says? This glorious human being. Unorthodox! I feel like the hosts are my very funny, very interesting, and very smart best friends. I think this is a slightly healthier version of an imaginary friend. This is amazing. I want to see myself as nothing else as but a slightly healthier version of an imaginary friend. I think friend. that's our new tagline. This is, by the way, how uh, Lisa introduced me to her parents when we were first dating. Liel is a slightly healthier version <laughs> of an imaginary friend. And they're like, we're so happy you, to meet you. You're going to love him. Molly A., you, as we've said before, as we'll say again, are amazing. We love you. But also, this is the, the question right before is your most retweeted tweet. And she says, I think it was about Hala hedgehogs. So <laughs> I guess we all need to go find that tweet. Right. So this picture of Malia's phone, which, by the way, has like 70,000 unread emails on it. And she says it's accurate, an accurate depiction of what her phone looks like. There was like some iPhone drama this weekend, right, Leo? You know you host the world's leading Jewish podcast when all of a sudden you start getting literally hundreds of emails and text messages. Did you see what happens when you ask Siri who is the president of Israel? I was like, guys, it's it's like Saturday night. I'm trying to watch Netflix. Like, what are you doing? Like, First of all, why are you in your phone? It's like, what is this about? But then it turns out that for a brief period of time there on Saturday night, if you asked Siri... Siri, who is the president of the state of Israel, Siri would return a picture of Reuven Rivlin, who is indeed the president of the state of Israel, with a caption that read, Ruby Rivlin is the president of the Zionist occupation state, which is so stupid because clearly it's someone just, you know, hacked or messed with the Wikipedia source code that, that Siri, Siri uses. Pulls from. But like to see people like flip out, you would have thought that like the United Nations basically declared that Israel was no longer a I mean, state they or something. Basically I've done that. But but so the interesting thing is I'm I'm very curious. So people make Wikipedia you can make like, you know, unapproved Wikipedia changes and until someone spots them and fixes them, Correct. they they live. But how long between this sort of sneaky edit was made and someone randomly asked Siri who the president of Israel is? <laughs> that was my question. It's it's like my first question is like, who is the first person ever to look at a cow's udder and be like, I wonder what happens if you pull on that? Right? Like, who's the first, who's the person sitting there being like, I wonder what happens if you ask Siri, who's the president of Israel? Unless it's the kind of thing that changes a lot. And so people like know to monitor it. You know, like those things like, is it a Jewish holiday? That website. Yeah, but who, and, and who are, it says like, who no. are these people who are sitting and asking Siri questions on I a regular basis? This is so sad. It's obviously someone who knew the answer, who saw it. Because if you didn't know anything about Israel and you saw this, you asked Siri who the president of Israel is, which is like a you know, thing maybe you do if you didn't know the president of Israel. And then you saw the president of the Zionist occupation state. You might actually not know what that means. You know what I think it but is? It has to be someone who knows all about Israel. Because here's the thing. It's not Bibi, the prime minister, who's a much more trafficked page. It's Ruby Rivlin. I actually think that the person who found out about this was Ruby Rivlin. I think he was sitting there at home being <laughs> like, Google. Siri, who's, who's the president of the state of Israel? <laughs> Who's the president of the state of Israel? Say it with feeling. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Sarah's like, you're the president. It's like, wait, what? And then he's like, let me put this on Twitter. But I think it's, <laughs> look, the internet is like this weird murky zone, honestly. And I, when you guys sent this around, I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's sort of like 
tomfoolery with a with a really sinister twist. With a sinister twist, and as as Josh Cross, our producer, noted in our conversation earlier I think this his morning, his full name is a producer Josh Cross. Producer Josh Cross with a K. Producer Yoshua Bencion Cross noted earlier this morning. The other thing about this is that even after people started, himself included, started posting kind of screenshots of this thing, people still went online and be like, no, that's a hoax. We're so screwed. Wait, that, that they were saying that the screenshot, that we faked like the, the... whole The whole thing is a hoax. This never happened because Apple fixed it like five hours in because yeah. people were like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, sorry, you know, whatever. But then people were like, well, that's not working for me. Therefore, it must have been a hoax, even though there's screenshots of it. Uh, our access to you know quality information not great. I like that someone thinks. Basically, that... this podcast is the only truth you will ever get. Listen oh to nothing else. Oh god, just us. Um, well, then I better order That's that it. large font mahjong card because I did say I was going to do that on the show. So now that I need to really be truthful, we'll stop talking about this. But like, the idea that someone created this thing to be like serious, saying anti-Zionist things—it's like that is such a small con to be running. Such a minor victory. With so much work. Towards it? Anyway. People I don't used know. to win battles. Now it's like, and I am the person who got Siri for three hours on a Saturday night to misidentify Ruby Rivlin. Congratulations to you, sir. So, since Mark's not here, let's just like replace his voice with the voice of our listeners who wrote in a lot this week and had some fun things to say in response to a few of our conversations last week. Here's this from Heather Chris. Chris with a K. Oh, by the way, say if Heather, Chris, and Josh Cross ever wanted to start a rap duo. What would we call them? Chris Cross. Gonna, gonna podcast. For Stephanie's newfound love of Maj, I recommend the shopgoodwill.com site to buy a used set. I found two of my sets on the site. Two of her sets. And they often have vintage sets. <laughs> I'm sorry. I recommend she goes on the site where people who have died... <laughs> Have left behind their mind. Go to these great estate sales up in upstate New York, um, <laughs> and they often have vintage sets. But she could uh. find herself in a bidding war. Now that I have my Maj sets, I stock the site for discarded Judaica. It's amazing and sad the personal items that end up on the site. And she says, "Mark, don't take up squash. What's missing from your life is pickleball." He's not here to respond to that, but I don't know. What about Spikeball? Have you seen that? It's like the Shark Tank game. Pickleball sounds like something from from the Nick Crawl show. It sounds a little bit dirty to me. Pickleball? Yeah. Well, this is because you've been watching too much Big Mouth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. This is a great one. This comes in from Josh Zelikovitz. I hope I am saying your name right. As someone whose name is constantly butchered, I should be better about that. Dear Unorthodox, can't help but think that Stephanie's advice last week on the horror might have been a bit too location specific. Quote, everyone knows the horror might work in New York. But mileage will vary elsewhere. Here in Toronto, I've seen too many horrors crumble and fall because there were not enough people into it, devolving into an awkward circle of clapping that feels more like a hoedown. Right. Here's what you need to do if you want a horror and don't have a critical mass of Jews. You need horror instigators. Tell your friends that you want a big horror and ask them to be the energetic ones getting everyone else involved. If you want shtick, say so and show your friends some videos with examples. Shtick is what happens at some weddings, which is like after the horror, during the horror, the right. bride and groom sit in chairs on the ground, not in the and people sort of like dance for them and, right. and do funny skits for them. They go they go full full fit costumes. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. The full um, the full fit. Yeah, so I like this, Josh. I appreciate bottle this. on the head and stuff like that. I don't think I said everyone knows the horror, but I said like I think I said that everyone loves a horror. But I guess I was a, I have basically, assumed that people have been to a wedding with a horror. So that's you're right. Basically, what Josh is telling us here is like us in Canada are not really comfortable with dancing in public. It's like I know you're a polite, civilized country. This is not your thing. It almost you evolved into a hoedown. Yeah, you don't have to. It's like, oh my God, people were showing emotions in public. That is not 
our way. That is not who we are as a people. Okay, this is another note in from Liza Cohen. She says, hello, Unorthodox. Great podcast as always. I wanted to respond to the question of how women can show being Jewish in public on the latest episode. My two points. One, it was mentioned that unless you are an Orthodox woman, it is hard to show you are Jewish. As a modern Orthodox woman, I would counter that out of context, an Orthodox woman just looks like someone who is dressed modestly or for the weather. Wearing a knee or T-length skirt and three-quarter sleeves to work looks normal in most places. Out of context, a modern Orthodox woman just looks like she's cold. (laughs) She's lovely. You should have brought a sweater. For married women with a thick headband, scarf as a headband, or a hat at work, it also doesn't look that far out of the ordinary or of religious significance. So really for Orthodox women, it is hard to tell as well. I personally wear a Jewish star. Oh, I like that. She's basically saying, it's actually not as obvious as I think it is. Right. You wear a hat. Yeah. You could either be religious or going to or a British- Or Amy Sherman Palladino. Or going to a British royal wedding. It was also mentioned to have a Chai or Hamsa on instead of a Jewish star. I didn't say instead of. I, I said like as, a, as another option, but that's okay. Um, but there are two precepts in Judaism that I wanted to mention in regards to this. Kadush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, and Halul Hashem, desecrating God's name. When people know you as a good person or see you doing something good and honest and see you are a Jew, it is a great Kadush Hashem. Whereas, for instance, someone who does something bad who is known to be a Jew would be a Halul Hashem. I really feel like the Kadush Hashems are going on all the time, but people don't know that they are being helped, assisted, etc. by a Jew, as the person isn't outwardly Jewish or publicly identified as Jewish. Therefore, I would urge people, instead of having an in-crowd message of a Chayan, to outwardly communicate to the world their Judaism with the Jewish star. Kadush Hashem is like constant 10 points for Gryffindor, but swap out Gryffindor with the Jewish people as a whole and Hashem. We should have like a little card. It's like whenever you do something nice, people just hand them a card and be like, today you've been helped by a Jew. But I do like the one thing I remember from Hebrew school. Today's mitzvah is brought to you. Today's mitzvah is brought to you by the letter J. That's exactly right. And the number number 18. I was going to go 613. That's much better. It's a lot more numbers. Um, But it does remind me like one of the few things I remember from Hebrew school is the teacher saying that if he's on the bus and his daughters are fighting, I've said this before, but if he's somewhere in public and his daughters are fighting, he'll take his yarmulke off because he basically doesn't want people to associate that with his Judaism. (laughs) And I just like that stuck with me. And I was like, even rabbi's daughters fight on uh, the, like in public? Right. Okay, like we're fine. <laughs> like almost like we're a normal people. No, but look, I, I totally get this now that I'm I'm uh, several weeks into wearing a yarmulke in public. Yeah, um, yours looks great. Well, thank you. I totally get the vibe. Like I get that now when I say things or do things, there's a moment in which I kind of stop and think and Because consider. someone sees you as because a Jew Because someone now. sees a Jew now. Like, right, a big old... So you have to be like nice online. Or do you have to be mean online? <laughs> So people know not to mess with us. <laughs> See, that's the conundrum. I've heard they're pushy. Like, am I polite? Nice to me. Or should I stand my ground? I don't know. Well, it's like how I always tip extra because I never want anyone to think that I'm like cheap. <laughs> like I'm working against the stereotype, but then I guess I look like I'm just whatever. Here's another one. Dear Unorthodox, though I am Team Stephanie, I disagree with her. Join the club, apparently, of letter writers who disagree with me. I disagree with her comment about tichels or meat pachat. Those are head coverings being restricted to married women. I'm a single reformed Jew who sometimes wears tichels, which is one of those um, head coverings. There is an increasing amount of non-Orthodox Jews wearing tichels, an amazing word, by the way, in recent years for multiple right? reasons. What a good name for a band. <laughs> the tichels, yeah. uh, including visibly expressing their Judaism, like some do with Kipot and Magain David. Those are Jewish stars. The from women of the headscarf company Rapunzel. That's amazing. It's spelled W-R-A-P-U-N-Z-E-L. Incredible. Support people of various kinds wearing them. I myself thought women looked pretty with them on, and I wanted to wear them sometimes when I feel like it. It's also a way for me to unapologetically and proudly express my Judaism. However, there can also be problems, like with women wearing kipot, as the listener mentioned. People may ask questions about tichels, too, or assume the person wearing it is married. But the tichel option is still available for anyone if they want to. Thinking about this also gave me an idea. 
The new year just started, and 2019 was the year we got Stephanie to put up a mezuzah. Oh, my God. I see what this is oh my going. God. <laughs> what if 2020 is the year we got Chava Rachel? That is my Hebrew name. Thank you uh, for, for remembering that. To wear a tichel for a day. It's just one day, and she's a married woman after all. I think she could pull it off just as she's already cute without one. It's her call either way. 2021 will be the year in which... Wishing all the best, which... Arden. Arden Donahue. I yeah. love this letter. This letter escalated oh very, very quickly. 2021 will be the year in which you go to the mikvah twice a day. I have to say... I love rocking a doily at synagogue. <laughs> that doily, because that to me was like the fancy ladies wore doilies. Like the moms wore doilies. Old fancy ladies. I tried to wear a doily at my off which would happen before our wedding. And everyone was like, you can't do it. And I was like, one day, doily. And then we have one more very fun <laughs> response. Hi, This is from Susan Stock. Hi, J. Crew. Read the discussion on wondering what to do as a female to express my Judaism with so many anti-Semitic attacks going on. Problem solved by pulling out my IDF hoodie purchased in spot a few years ago that had been hiding from public view. I had been avoiding wearing it till now. And this is a big gray sweatshirt with like the big yellow logo that says Israel Defense Forces. Love it. So all sorts of options for people. I'm apparently going to buy a tichel. Let me go on Rapunzel. I, th- I think you need one of those. sponsor. I think, you know, a Rapunzel tichel and an IDF sweatshirt. And a gun and a falafel ball. I love and it. And two pitas and you're you're good. Fish is the ombudsperson or chief complaint officer of Concordia University in Montreal. She's the author of the amazingly titled book, I Wanted Fries With That, How to Ask for What You Want and Get What You Need. Amy, I can barely say the name of your book with confidence. I think that shows that I need it. How do you say I wanted fries with that appropriately? I wanted fries with that. Give me the fucking fries, motherfucker. That's not how you say it. It's not how I say it. (laughs) If it works for you, then I always tell people, if your techniques work for you, You don't need me. But to me, like, this is a sentence I never say. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the title of this book? Sure. The origin of the title is when I was 14, my friends and I used to go out for lunch from school. And we used to eat at a place where you had to go up and place your order, and then they would bring the food to you. And one day we waited and waited, waited for our fries. And Julie said, I ordered the fries, but I'm not sure if they heard me. And this is a really tight group of friends that I'm still friends with today. And we always use the expression, I ordered fries, but I'm not sure if they heard me, to mean I tried to do something and I I don't know if it worked or I wasn't assertive enough. So I had that story in my mind when I sat down to write this book. So, okay, when someone's at a restaurant and they order fries or they order a side salad and it doesn't arrive, for me, I'm just like, I mean, maybe they're having a hard day, blah, 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 blah. What are you supposed to say? You're supposed to say, I think I ordered a salad. Or you could say, did I order a salad? Or you could say, I thought this came with fries. Or you could say, I'm sorry to bother you. I think I ordered a poutine. I'll be Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Things I've never said. And you did, always, right? (laughs) I think I ordered a poutine and I got a salad. Was it my mistake or is it then trail off a little bit? So as somebody who generally has no problem asking for what I want, why was the universe calling for a book to tell people how to say something that you'd think would come fairly basically to a lot of people, which is I ordered fries. I even paid for the fries and there are no fries. I mean, the book is about how to basically be assertive, how to stand up for yourself. Is that a problem? Are we not assertive enough as as a human race? You know, because I treat complaints and I've treated thousands over the years. This would be a great place to say, what does an ombudshuman do? An ombudshuman? 
<laughs> I like that. An ombudsman receives complaints, and I'm responsible for promoting fairness. So in this case, I work in a university, and I'm responsible for making sure that everything in the university is fair. Students, faculty, staff, anyone could come to me. In this case, it's almost 60,000 different people can come to our office and um, complain about something or point out an injustice. And we have to assess whether or not they're correct. And if there's a problem, we can do a full investigation. Does this exist outside of Canada? Like the idea of someone at a university that I could have said, like, my professor graded me this and graded this other person this and our tests are pretty similar. Like Some universities have, but it's not in Canada. It's very common. Here, some have it and some don't. What's a garden variety complaint? So it could be an exam was unfair, but it would have to be really unjust for you to come to the ombudsperson. So you'd have to have tried to contact the professor and tried a reevaluation and tried blah, 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 and have a cosmic injustice. Or it could be something like the temperature in a certain building is too cold and we've complained about it repeatedly and it hasn't improved. And what makes me think there's a need for the book is that I noticed that some complaints are better answered than others, and it's not only based on merit. It's based on how it was presented. Two people coming forward with the same issue, one might get better results. And this book is my attempt to even the playing field. What are the key principles? What gets good results? What doesn't? Being calm gets good results. Knowing your facts and doing your research before. Um, I'll give you an example that I really like, which is from when I was the ombudsperson in a Jewish nursing home. Somebody complained to me because... Someone sounds- complained? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great training ground, I'll that tell you. That like ombudsperson hell, basically. It was that's ombudsperson like- heaven um, because that's where I learned to be an ombudsperson and there's a lot of negotiation and finessing to be done. But there is sometimes an actual injustice, right? So this woman came to see me because she said that there was a vendetta against her husband in the kitchen. He was getting too many broccoli stems... And not enough broccoli florets. That's some oranges in the new black shit. So I can decide whether I think a complaint is receivable or not. And I was like, hi, I'm interested. (laughs) I'm going to follow this one. And I went around. I tried to interview him. He wasn't verbal. And I interviewed several people, which brought me to the kitchen. And what does it turn out? This is a Jewish nursing home. So kosher broccoli is frozen, right? Do you know that? It's like if you want to have certain vegetables at your wedding— and it's kosher, they have to be pre-frozen. So at this nursing home, they were buying their broccoli frozen. And when you buy frozen broccoli, you have way more stems than you do florets. And that was the answer. So it wasn't a vendetta against her, it was a vendetta against all Jews. That's correct. But what I like about it is that it's a complaint that has an answer, but the answer isn't, we're going to sit there and pick out florets for your husband. The answer is... Convert to Christianity. (laughs) Or move nursing homes. Yeah. No, the answer is that there's an explanation. Like, you're not crazy. He is getting more stems. Everyone's getting more stems. And here's why. I'm trying to imagine, like, 40 years from now, Sid and I are in the Jewish nursing home. Will she be that attentive to my diet? Like, will she notice when (laughs) I'm nonverbal? I'm nonverbal, but she's noticing I'm not getting enough florets. That's love. That's that's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. So we met you and we're very captivated by you back this spring when we all went to the Jewish Book Council auditions, which is where we all present for two minutes. And then all the JCCs and all the Jewish book fairs around the country get to pick who they want to have at their fairs. And you've been very busy on this tour. And I'm so curious. You give your presentation about the book and about complaining. What is the Q&A like at a typical event? The Q&A is fantastic. At my the launch I did in Montreal, somebody came up with a question about her tailor. She brought her skirt in and how the skirt was fixed, but it wasn't fixed correctly and she and the whole audience got involved and then she came to see me after and said you know where can I get in touch with you to tell you the end of the story so I get a lot of those (laughs) so you do a lot of free ombuds yeah sure I do but so it's funny like the dry cleaner is a big example throughout this book Mm -hmm. right like you take something they ruin it what do you do we're also in the age of yelp 
Like, right. how does Yelp play into this? Because now customers can be like, you gave me bad service. I'm going to go on Yelp and basically destroy your business. How do you sort of effectively complain in this social media saturated world? The social media question kind of has three prongs for me because one is it depends what you're trying to get. If you just want to get attention and you can tweet and Yelp and post on your Facebook and have people pile on and, and be against someone, then social media is your ticket, right? But if you want a correction, then I think the best way is to deal specifically with the company or the person that you have a problem with. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think when you have a problem, like this is an example from the book, um, debris on the street that isn't cleared up and someone trips, the temptation is to go shout it from social media because you're so upset. But if you don't actually contact the city, you're not going to get results, right? It's not going to be fixed and corrected. And then the third issue is that people have success complaining to companies via their social media pages. I personally have I'm not experienced like I haven't done it that many times but people have a lot of results. That would be like a student who instead of coming to you who is available to them going on Twitter and being like at Concordia did this professor graded this blah 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 right and then that and and then I'm stuck because I can't treat a complaint that doesn't come to my office. Right, you can't go out and scour the world for social <laughs> yeah. media for uh, people annoyed on social media. And that's right. a P- yeah, that's right. a PR issue, right? right? Yeah. Like, yeah, right. you're not like a complaint handling vigilante. You're just out, you're not Batman, like flying. Like I saw someone's mad somewhere. They actually have to file a complaint with you. You know, I want to segue soon into the idea that we are Jews and complaining and all that stuff. But you make a really important distinction, I think, in this book between assertiveness and aggressiveness. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Yes, I have zero tolerance for aggressive behavior and rude behavior. I think it's possible to get what you want in a very calm way. So like you're at a restaurant. Like I think the restaurant is for me such a powerful example because first of all, we go there a lot. We are, you know, we need to eat, right? (laughs) Sometimes we're doing that out in public and that actually involves a ton of other people. There's a host who seats you. There's the waiter who takes your order. There's the sommelier. Yes, there's there's the psalm. There's the kitchen. I mean, there's so many points at which something can go wrong. And my inclination is I want everyone to like me. I want even like the server at a restaurant I'm never going to go to again to think I'm nice. Okay, first of all, I'm sure everybody likes you. I'm going to thank you. And second of all, people can like you and you can still have needs and wants. Both things can be true. So you sound like my therapist, (laughs) (laughs) my ombudsperson. (laughs) So I think it's all right to state your business in a very nice way and still have people like you. So let's say... The sommelier brings the wrong vintage. Oh, I hate that. Right. And you really <laughs> wanted something. I don't know anything about wine. You want okay, to a little fruity and they me, brought Mark. you something dry. Right. And that's just, that will not stand. That will not stand, given that you're eating, I don't know, right. Pacific yeah. char. Right. Yeah. I and don't it's know expensive. If that exists. It's expensive. Yeah. And, they, and there's kale. <laughs> and so I say, excuse me, I don't think, I don't think this is the wine I ordered. You, yeah. Or you could say, hi, what wine did I order? I'm confused. Was okay. it me? Was it you? I'm not sure. So one of the things you're talking about, it seems to me, is we, we all bring a different set of anxieties. And a lot of this is like, at, at the end of the day, what we want is to be happy. I'm happier if I just overlook a lot of slight. So like the restaurant slight, I know people who, there's always something wrong at the restaurant. Part of this person's life is that the soup is never the right temperature when it arrives. Right. And the wine is never the right, right. I shouldn't say never, but like often... I go years at a time where I'm fine with my restaurant food. Right. Because frankly, what works for me is like always deciding like, hey, it's American 2019. I have a great life. I'm grateful for all the things that I have. 
who cares if my hot water for my tea isn't quite hot enough? And I find that to be a very functional way to exist. So, I mean, I think we have a culture where people are annoyed at too much. I think people who are annoyed all the time probably wouldn't be attracted to or benefit from any advice that I have to offer, right? In my mind, people who are reading it are people like Stephanie who want to speak up and don't have the words, don't know what to do. Those are my people. People who are, you're right, who are never satisfied, who are always, one of my closest friends is constantly changing tables. We have never once met that the table has been okay. So now, before she gets there, I always say to the hostess, we're going to have to change tables. <laughs> Just work with me. And she comes in, we wink at each other, we change tables. I mean, it's not. But the solution for that person is she needs to change, right? I mean, in the end, what would be a win would be if she understood any table's fine. Like, isn't that where we want to head with that human being for her to thrive? If you're in a world in which the table's always wrong, there's something about your engagement with the world that's not flourishing, it seems to me. I think for me and maybe a lot of our listeners, there's an added layer here, right? There is a stereotype about Jews being pushy. I knew you were going to go Jewish. I, I always do. You're it's always, like, I'm, it's it's like almost Jews. like that's like how I get my paycheck it's around always, here. It's always about the Jews. Um, how I get that Jewish money. I do feel conscious of Jewish stereotypes all the time. Jews are pushy. Jews are this. Jews are the, both pushy and over. I, I mean, how do I exist in the world as a Jewish person? I want to get what I want, but I don't want to be that Jew who's like, I need to speak with your manager or that person, right? Like <laughs> we're working against our listeners, our community, kind of a, a dual stereotype. We're standing up for ourselves sometimes comes with a reputation that we don't necessarily deserve. I agree. And I think when, one of the things that's complicated about it for me on the Jewish side is that we have two stereotypes that don't go together. We have the stereotype of demanding to see a manager and having a big mouth. And we also have the stereotype of the Jewish mother who's like, that's okay. I'll eat the burnt toast. You go ahead. <laughs> right? I come from a burnt toast mom. So that's all right. You know, we can have Chinese. I hate it. But I'll manage. <laughs> right. So, a lot of like the, the we, guilt stereotype yeah. is often the sort of, oh, I'm not going to complain. I like, no, no. Right. That's you do, fine. You, do you, you come late. I'll manage. But, you know, like my survivor grandmother would ask for the restaurant to change the temperature. It's too cold in here. Can you turn the tape? Which is so interesting on? because my relatives who were not survivors, they were, but they were Jews of that generation, my older relatives, they kept their heads down. You don't want to be the complainer because you're yeah, the those Jew. Are the exactly. Those are the two things. Right, There's the, right, I want so like, exactly this. My grandmother would never, never have asked to change tables in the restaurant. And my grandmother would not have thought twice about it. So, I mean, there are these it's two poles. It's almost like Jews are all kinds of people. It's almost like... <laughs> no, but... But I hear what you're saying, right? Like, you don't want to be the pushy Jewess. Yeah, so what do I do? I think Mark's point about picking your battles is a very good one. And I think knowing what is important to you and what your values are and when you're going to... Maybe it's not tables. Maybe you don't care about tables, but maybe you care about returning things. Or maybe returning things isn't for you, but you care if somebody's going to park in a handicapped spot. You know, it's it's about finding areas where you maybe need to see justice served. There's something really interesting in the book. There's the the brown lettuce yeah. where you go to your sandwich shop and you see that the lettuce that you love is brown. In that situation, you do something kind of brilliant. So good job. Why, thank you. Can you tell us how you get those things that are a little bit off, how you sort of fix them for your benefit? I get to my turn in the sandwich shop. And the lettuce looks a little brown. So I say to the sandwich artist, does the lettuce look brown to you? And she looks down and she says, yeah, it does. And she took the brown lettuce out and brought the fresh lettuce. I included her in the solution. I think this works very well in travel examples, too, where everybody's coming at the gate and everybody's barking orders. I think that's a good time to say, hey, rough shift. What time do you get on? What time do you get off? Um, I need to get home tonight because my sister's having a baby or whatever the reason is, so can you help me? And not demanding specific outcomes. 
I've had luck with that. And you just assume that the person has good intentions and is not trying to mess with right. you or your sandwich If you can connect with the person, you'll be able to tell by looking in their face if there's a connection or if they're like just you're a number, right? But if you if you can get a connection with the person and get them to help you, I think you're going to be ahead. And so do you believe that you can, by just your own attitude, your own actions, you can make some, like someone want to help you more? Oh, yeah. I'm 100% convinced of it. Sure. So what's the bad thing to do in the gate situation? Well, the bad thing is to show your frustration and take it out on the person who clearly has no control over, clearly didn't cancel your flight, and is clearly stressed out and trying to accommodate the 300 people standing in front of them shouting. It's amazing how mean people are to the gate agents who have no, who didn't control the weather. Right? Okay. This is my ombudsman question for you. Okay. So you have a situation where someone that is working in a working environment has bad breath and they are on call, they're on, they do sales, and you describe how you yourself tell them that they have bad breath. I never want to tell someone that they have food in their teeth because that confrontation makes me so uncomfortable that I might actually let them go the whole day with food in their teeth. Can you tell me how to fix it? And you're looking at me with horror right now. Well, because it happened to me on this book tour. At one point, I took a selfie in the sunshine, and I see a giant piece of spinach in my teeth, and I had been with these ladies... And no one told me. So they were literally not following your instructions. <laughs> Thank God it was sunny and I wanted to take a picture of myself. So how do I tell – like what's the nice way to do it? I, I, I'm really a straight shooter. Like uh, to so me if I it's, think of my uh, teeth Mark, right now. You, you have something in your you teeth. You have nothing in your teeth right now, Stephanie, except um, curly whiteness. Stephanie, let me see your smile. You have such a beautiful smile. And right here, just go oh like that. God. Okay. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's nice. You add a compliment. Oh, Interesting. It's crazy because you're like almost more therapist than ombuds person, it seems. You're so right. And I keep waiting for someone to say like, under what auspices, Amy Fish, are you answering <laughs> this? And sometimes I just say like, I'm just a person standing here. So I'll just tell you what I think. So do you have some like pearl of wisdom that our listeners can take so they can be more assertive and get those fries? If you speak up and try and ask, even if your technique isn't perfect, even if you're not 100% confident, even if you don't know if you're speaking for sure to the right person, you have a chance that you'll be able to change things. But if you stay quiet and you don't try, then for sure nothing's ever going to change. I mean, I think that my takeaway from your book is that, you know, you can ask someone nicely for something. If You can assume that a waiter did not forget your side order on purpose because they hate you. It's that just that something messed up and that you can actually raise things in a very, very gentle and polite way and just sort of still stand up for yourself. I think that was a really useful takeaway. Did you learn? What was your takeaway, Mark? That you can be dissatisfied with the world without being a bad person, basically. That like dissatisfactions of the world are part of the price of being human. And like that's how you ne – and negotiating them is an actual – human activity. It's not being a fetching, you know, ethnic stereotype. So, I mean, I found that very sort of therapeutic. Like you put a very human face on it that I think in a lot of cases comes from the fact that you, you're dealing with this very diverse student body at this very large university and everyone has stuff. And a lot of their stuff is really reasonable. Like the room being too cold, like that's not that's not a kvetch. That's a people right. shouldn't have to be in rooms that are too cold. Well, air right. conditioning is a function of the patriarchy. Amy Fish is the author of I Wanted Fries with That. And we didn't even talk enough about fries, which are a favorite topic <laughs> of mine. Like fries here are a metaphor, but for me, they're actually a meal. There are days when that's what we eat for dinner is fries. I Wanted Fries with That, how to ask for what you want and get what you need. And if someone wants to reach oh, you, Amy, you. And, and find your book and, and ask you questions <laughs> get, and get free therapy, where can they reach you? I'm at Amy Fish Writes on all social, and my website is also called Amy Fish Writes. And thank you for coming from Canada to visit us. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
Broadway Comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, J. Crew. About six months ago, I sat down with a retired professor of English literature from Temple University. Her name is Carolyn Karcher, and she has edited a new book of essays by people who used to be Zionists but have turned against Zionism or have become very, very skeptical of Israel. They are ex-Zionists, non-Zionists, anti-Zionists. And this is a point of view that, to be perfectly frank, we don't listen to enough on unorthodox. I think just by nature of our engagement with the Jewish community, while we certainly have people on from the left and from the right, I think that generally there's an assumption on the part of a lot of our guests that Israel as a nation state for the Jews is a good thing, that a certain amount of Zionism, whether it's liberal Zionism or hardcore Zionism or something in between, is the norm. Um, I don't feel entirely comfortable with presuming that that's the norm. I mean, for one thing, throughout Jewish history, that has not been the norm. Only since the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and certainly after World War II, has it been a normal position, has it been the expected position that Jews would be Zionists. Um, it used to be, for example, that pretty much all ultra-Orthodox Jews were anti-Zionist, and all Reform Jews, for different reasons, were anti-Zionist, and that, you know, there were eccentric Zionist believers in various camps, and that most Zionists were totally secular. So the idea that engaged religious Jews presume that Zionism is the norm is a very, very recent innovation 
in Jewish history. Of course, there was always a an expectation that Jews would return to Israel someday, but the someday was often thought to be centuries off in the future or millennia or when the Messiah came. The idea that we should be moving there now is pretty recent. And to be honest, I don't like the way that it's become an expectation of all Jews if they want to participate in Jewish life. I don't like the fact that Hillel's on college campuses and synagogues try to ostracize or sideline uh, anti-Zionist or Zionist skeptical views. I think that Jews don't have prescribed politics. I think we should have Republicans in our big tent, but I also think we should have anti-Zionists in our big tent. So I was really excited to have this interview with Carolyn Karsher, and I'm excited to share it with you. But if you listen to the end, and I hope you do, you will see that even a really friendly interviewer like me, even someone who was eager to have her kind of skepticism on the show and who agrees with a great deal of it, ultimately, I got pretty frustrated. I think that there was an unwillingness to look at certain hard truths. By the way, that's an unwillingness that I see in my conservative and doctrinaire Zionist friends all the time. You know, you bring up the suffering of the Palestinians and they give you some version of, well, they deserve it or they bring it on themselves, which is not a morally serious answer. But when we talked about certain aspects of anti-Semitism or of the flight from reality on the far left, I think that Dr. Karsher was not so eager to look at truth there either. But anyway, I digress. I want you to have a listen. I want you to judge for yourself. And I know that you'll write to us with your comments. Here's me with Carolyn Karsher in the Argo Studios a few months back. Have a listen. Our Jew of the Week is Carolyn Karsher. She's a retired professor from Temple University, where she taught English and women's studies. And she's the editor of Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation, which was just published this year. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so what's the book about? So the book is about uh, 40 contributors who were brought up believing in Zionism and who, due to various experiences, uh, cease to define themselves as Zionists. Are most of these people, would they use the term anti-Zionist? Would they say former Zionist? What, and, and give me, I know that within the community, there's a variety of terms that people invoke. Yes, so yes. Who, who are these people? I think most of them would say they are anti-Zionist, yes. Anti-Zionist? Yes. And so in your, would you say you're an anti-Zionist? Yes. What does that mean for you? That means for me that I no longer believe in the idea that Jews need a state of their own to be safe that uh, their safety depends on controlling and dominating and oppressing another people. That, that to me, is what Zionism means. So one of the things I noticed in reading this book, and it has a lot of really interesting essays in it, some I really liked, some I didn't like, <laughs> some I couldn't stand, but that's, you know, that's expected for a collection of 40 essays, right? One of the things I noticed is it seems to be people talking about political status to Zionism, right? Absolutely. I mean, there was a yes. whole discourse about cultural Zionism and, and, of course, there's spiritual Zionism, which are huge parts of historical Zionism that most of your contributors aren't interested in. Is that right? Well, those forms of Zionism lost out very, very early. And it was political Zionism that ultimately created the state of Israel. And it was political Zionism that ran and runs the state of Israel. So there's really no point in talking about these other forms that never, in fact, were implemented well, I mean, I guess we can save this for later in the conversation if we have time. But I mean, I think for someone who is coming to the book, it wouldn't be the book to come to as a primer on Zionism historically, right? Because 
Zionism actually did have all these other streams. And I still know people who define themselves as Zionists, even though they're in direct opposition to everything about the current state of Israel. But that's not the concern of the book. Right. So the language you just used to say that you're an anti-Zionist is that it seemed to me it had two parts in it. One was you said that you no longer believe that Jews need their own state in which to be safe. And then another clause was a state in which they dominate well, other people. Is it? Yes. I want to pull those two things apart, but did I get that right? You did. But to me, the second thing flows inevitably from the first thing. So that any ethnically defined state is going to be one in which... Ethnically or religiously defined, yes. Is going to be one in which people end up dominating over minority right. groups, right? But let's unwind it in the other direction. I mean, I think the first thing a lot of our listeners, many of whom are Gentiles, many of whom are Jews of every possible political and religious persuasion, but one thing that I think a, a certain portion of them would say is, how could you look at current events today with rising anti-Semitism in Europe and the United States um, and, and the fact that we know that anti-Semitism comes in waves and that it always comes back and not wonder if perhaps having our own state is one useful bulwark against being killed. Well, because I look at the past 70 years of Israel's existence, and uh, Israelis have lived in a perpetual state of war. Uh, they are the most militaristic state, or one of the most militaristic states um, on, on the face of the planet. It doesn't seem to have worked. It doesn't seem to have provided either physical safety, or I would say especially spiritual safety, or spiritual wholeness. I, you know, I believe that what is working now as an alternative to the, this idea of fleeing to a state of your own is solidarity with other oppressed peoples. And to me, our safety lies in solidarity with other oppressed peoples and in not having this idea that we're the only ones who are oppressed and we must have a refuge. I think the idea wouldn't be that we're the only ones who are oppressed, but that Having states where people can go is often one way in sort of a, a world of different ways we can create states that a people could be safe. So, for example, why the Native Americans wanted some autonomy over their own regions in the United States, because they felt that their persons or their traditions were at tremendous risk if they were just put into kind of the cosmopolitan stew of, of pluralism, right? Or the way that the French Canadian, the Quebecois wanted some autonomy there, right? I mean, I don't think it's necessarily... I've never heard a Zionist say, we're the only oppressed people, just that one of the ways that people have gotten safety is by having some degree of autonomy. Yes, I, I do believe that the comparison with Native Americans doesn't work. I mean, they were on the land, they lived in their own communities, and this land was taken away from them, and what they were left with was a, either a tiny bit of this original land, or they were shunted off into some land that the U.S. government didn't want. So it's really not not a valid well, it's, uh, comparison. Well, it's not the same history. I'm sort of drilling down on one piece of Zionist reasoning, right, which is, and as I said, there's lots of them. The one I think of great interest to a lot of our listeners and to me personally, right? I mean, I once read an essay called Zionism for Refugees where I said, look, there's actually not a lot of places Jews can immigrate if they feel unsafe right now. You know, if you're a French Jew and you feel that you're unsafe in France, which is a reasonable thing for a lot of Jews to feel in France right now. There aren't a lot of countries that will take you. The United States, for example, probably won't. Our immigration policy, as we all know, is very unfriendly to claims of asylum, right? But Israel will. So the question I'm interested in is, it always seems to me that the anti-Zionist position, which is one that I, I think exposes us to a lot of really important truths about human rights and about the claims of other peoples. I mean, one I have tremendous sympathy with. Just to be frank, whenever I talk with anti-Zionists, I feel like they're a little cavalier about Jewish safety. 
for example, I wasn't persuaded by the book that our safety lies in Saudi Lies in Saudi Arabia. I mean, a lot of those other people might be anti-Semites or they might not. There's no historical proof that I can see that the best thing to do is to trust in solidarity with other oppressed peoples when we're really at risk. In other words, that didn't, there was no, that wasn't an answer during the pogroms in the early 20th century in Russia or in Germany in the 1930s. I don't know what that would mean to say a Jew in Paris right now who felt they couldn't be publicly Jewish. Well, I don't think it's as dire as all that in France. I go to France regularly, so I don't believe that it is as dire. What about in New York City where there have been dozens of attacks on Orthodox Jews recently, just in the past few months? That's real. You can look at the ADL statistics or you can look at the FBI statistics, and Jews are the most attacked minority group, uh, religious minority in America by far, and it's it's oh, growing that is, hugely. That is absolutely untrue. Muslims are the most attacked not, minority not group. By, not by anyone who's counting. I mean, who? Where's? Where did you get that statistic? That's not what the FBI or the ADL says. Uh, the mosques are attacked all the time under the Patriot Act that followed 911. Uh, Muslim communities were very much under attack. I, I'm certainly sympathetic to Jews or any other group that's being attacked, but I don't believe it's true that yeah. that Jews are the most attacked group at this point. If I could flip your 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 question around, um, you're you're saying that you don't see evidence that solidarity is mm-hmm. the solution. I also don't see evidence that having a state is the solution. I think that uh, Liberia, for instance, is you know a, a wonderful example of what happens. Uh, American blacks were s- sent to Liberia. They could be emancipated if they agreed to go to Liberia. They went there. They became an oppressive class, and um, they dominated the uh, native African population of Liberia, and Liberia was a mess. Mm -hmm. Certainly, African Americans also had this idea of wanting a refuge, and I think fortunately for them, they didn't get it, because... Again, I, I, I do believe that the best way of, of fighting racism is to make common cause with other peoples and to fight for equal rights for everybody. And I think that that's what Jews should be doing uh, and uh, to a great extent are doing. And that's what all oppressed groups need to be doing. I mean, just to pull the camera back here, I mean, just thinking from a broad perspective, and I don't mean to sort of elide the richness of the essays in the book. I think people who are curious about the book, again, they should go by Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, and they'll get a real wealth of different perspectives on how people, it's mostly conversion narratives, I've said. It's people who began as Zionists, raised as Zionists, often moved to Israel, often made Aliyah, worked on Kibbutzim, etc., uh, who then got disillusioned. Right, so exactly. People know what they'd be reading. But these questions often, it seems to me, what they come to is a disagreement over which is a better way to live as a state, as a, a nationalist or ethno-nationalist state, or as a liberal cosmopolitan state. Is that, you know, I feel like that's ultimately what gets we get, we argue over here. Yes. And just, and I'll I'll let you respond to that, but let me say one more thing, which is, I think a lot of liberal Jews like me both aesthetically and emotionally, feel like, of course, it would be nice if the world were organized as liberal cosmopolitan pluralist states. But then we also recognize that it's mostly not, and that there may be good historical reasons that that isn't why we're always organized, that often liberal cosmopolitan states have been somewhat unsafe places for Jews. As you point out, Israel is a somewhat unsafe place (laughs) for Jews, right? But it doesn't strike me that the anti-Zionists are always coming to it from a place of saying, how can we maximize Jewish safety? They're coming to it from a place of saying, 
we don't believe there's ever a justification for a state organized this way. Um, in other words, Jews might have to take a certain greater degree of risk if that's what it takes to get to liberal cosmopolitanism. Does well, that make sense? Um, yes, but I don't agree with it. I'm sure. Um, but- I, I do feel that, in fact, historically, Jews have always been best off in states where everybody had equal rights, at least on paper, and that it's really in the states that were authoritarian and that pushed one particular ethnic or religious group to the fore. It's, it's those states that have been unsafe for Jews. I think um, one main theme of the book that hasn't come out yet in this sure. conversation is that all of my, my contributors really want to see a Judaism where the, the, the traditional ethical principles that make Judaism a great religion are practiced and are taken seriously, and that these principles really are not compatible with an ethno-religious state. They certainly aren't practiced in Israel, and they can't be, given the ideology of the state. So uh, my contributors say again and again that actually, since um, renouncing Zionism, they have found a closer relationship with Judaism, that their Judaism has felt to them richer and more meaningful and more authentic. This isn't true for everybody. Not everybody has is religious, but for those who are secular and progressive, their progressivism feels more authentic now that they don't have to constantly make an exception for Israel. I mean, that actually gets to a question that I have about, you know, some of your contributors. I think you could correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know how you pulled them all together, what the community is that contributed to this book. Some of them are active in the BDS movement. Some are active in Jewish Voice for Peace, JVP. And I have some questions about those communities, but I don't want to ascribe those affiliations to everyone in this book if, in fact, that's not right. I mean, how did you pull together this group of contributors? Well, at first, I was looking, of course, for people who, like me, had been brought up as Zionists and had changed their minds. And there were a a few that I knew personally, and I knew they had interesting stories. Then after that, whenever I heard at a public event somebody tell a story that seemed promising, I tried to find their contact information. If I saw a letter to the editor or an article, I tried to follow up. Also, by word of mouth, I tried to get people to recommend other people. Um, This was particularly true for the Sephardi Mizrahi contributors because I knew a couple of them within JVP. I knew Professor Ella Shohat because I, I didn't know her personally, but I had heard her give a brilliant lecture. But after that, I didn't know where to go. Mm-hmm. And so Ella Shohat recommended Clarice Harbon, who recommended Shoshi Madmoni Gerber. Uh, right. And so it built out from there. Right. I mean, so one of the things, it's interesting that you say that a lot of your contributors have found a closer relationship to Judaism since coming out or or coming into their anti-Zionism. And I, I can absolutely understand how that would be true for some people. In my own experience as a journalist principally, I mean, as a, as a Jew, but also as a practicing Jew, but also as a journalist, one of the things that makes me feel that, that anti-Zionism as currently formulated is so incompatible with who I am is that I often find great antipathy towards religion. I mean, it, it seems to be a movement pretty dominated by secularists and people who roll their eyes at religion. I mean, I know of you know some of these groups. I don't want to name. I don't remember mm. if it was a JVP group or an If Not Now group or a different group here and there. But you know, some of them will hold events on Shabbat, for example. They don't set us. They don't presume that some people might want to be worshiping or might want to be with their families. And there seems to be a bit of a flavor 
of the apostate. We once were really interested in this community and now a pox on them. Am I wrong to sense that? I, I believe so, yes. Really? Yes. I think um, this may have been true in the 60s among leftists um, because leftists were virtually um, unanimously secular and often atheist. For me, one of the great discoveries was, in fact, seeing how meaningful Judaism was to so many of my contributors. So that's not true. When JVP holds events on Shabbat, they usually they start off with a Shabbat service. They try to make it compatible for people who can't practice certain activities during Shabbat. The If Not Now people are actually much more religious. Most of them went to Jewish day schools. Uh, most of them are very practicing Jews. I know a lot of them through the New Synagogue Project in, in Washington. And when Rabbi Joseph Berman started this new non-Zionist synagogue, we have 300 people. Most of them are young. They, they say they want to be multi-generational, but I'm very much the exception when I go. And then Brant Rosen's synagogue in Chicago, I think, has, I don't know how big its membership is, but he has a non-Zionist synagogue as well. Yes. Right? I mean, yes. I know there's a, if you go to major large cities, uh, you know, New York, Washington, Chicago, there is that community of people who are observant or Jewishly engaged, let's say, religiously engaged and also anti-Zionist. I had one human rights-oriented rabbi say to me, who was a Zionist uh, themselves, say to me that they felt that in general, though, JVP, and again, this is a large anti-Zionist uh, organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, was basically fashioning itself as a separate denomination, that its members were not joining, you know, would say that they were interested in observance, but they were always explaining to you why they had to quit their reform or conservative or orthodox temple or synagogue and why essentially why they were being factionalist. And that concerns me, right? Because I'm interested in sort of the unity of Am Yisrael, right? And so I sometimes feel that these critiques are coming from people whose stake in, in Judaism, the religion, as you put it, the religion, right, is sort of attenuated or conditional. Like they'll do it, but only among people who they think are politically pure. Well, I, again, I think what you're leaving out in this is that Am Yisrael and the unified Jewish community has expelled people. It has made it impossible for anybody who is not Zionist, who does not share the very strongly pro-Israel orientation of these synagogues and these established Jewish communities to belong unless they keep silent about their beliefs. And that's the reason why most people have had to leave them. And what JVP is trying to do, uh, and I think this is one of the missions of its rabbinical council, and you saw that from the essay of Rabbi Alyssa Wise at the end of the book, is precisely to provide the spiritual space that other synagogues ought to have provided and did not. Well, I mean, back up a second. I've never known in all my journalistic travels of any synagogue expelling anyone for for anything, really. They make them feel very... <laughs> Literally, for anything. They make them feel very, very unwelcome, to say the least. Do they make them feel very unwelcome, or is it that people feel unwelcome because there's an Israeli flag, or because they say the prayer for the state of Israel, or... I mean, I talk to people all the time who are very far to the left of their congregations who say, but, you know, it's my congregation. Well, one of my uh, contributors, Seth Morrison, who was in the established Jewish community for most of his career, was talking to me recently. He, he recently moved to Las Vegas and joined 
the most progressive synagogue there. And he's finding that people simply will not talk to him, will not listen to him. And he, he's having a great deal of difficulty with that. I hear that from people all the time. Jews can be assholes. You know that, that <laughs> like everyone. Uh, the reason Rabbi Brandt Rosen founded his new synagogue was that after leading his Reconstructionist synagogue for 17 years, he was forced out of it by a min- minority, but a very vocal minority of people who didn't like his pro-Palestinian activism. The experience of being forced out or being made to feel un- unwelcome is very real. Yeah, no, for sure. And every community I've always been part of, I've said if there's people whom you disagree with, your first job is to invite them to Shabbat dinner. I'm a big tent person. And I feel that way in both directions. I mean, I feel that way that far left spaces should be concerned if they don't have people they disagree with within their spaces. And I think more conservative spaces should welcome people to the left. I mean, again, I, I want us to be together. And if to the extent that it's establishment communities that are part of the problem, I've tried to call that out where I can. Again, because your book is about political Zionism and the state of Israel, let's return to that. What do you want for the state of Israel? I mean, I think there's a lot of people who feel, yes, there are human rights abuses in Israel, not as bad as elsewhere, but worse than there should be. But they feel that there's a quagmire, that people are stuck, that there's no useful road to peace. What should Israel do? I don't feel that what should Israel do is quite the right question, because as you say, it is a quagmire and they are stuck. And I have often heard progressive Israelis say, nothing can come out of our own community. We need external direction and help. So what I want is I I want Israel to conform to the ideal that the U.S. doesn't conform to, but uh, enunciates as its founding principles, equal rights for everybody, equal citizenship for everybody everybody being absolutely on the same footing. And of course, this is not true. Um, they, there are more than 50 laws that discriminate against what they call Arab Israelis and the, the home demolitions and the house raids and the inferior schools and all the other things are symptoms of the fact that this is not a society based on equality. So that's what I want. And I, I do believe that, of course, this is incompatible with the idea of a Jewish state, especially as enunciated in the recent nation-state law. Mm -hmm. I believe that ultimately Israel would be much better off. Everybody there would be much safer, much happier if that goal were met. Probably depends on how it's met, right? I think a lot of people would say, and I would probably say, if it were met in a two-state solution that conformed to the old Green Line boundaries, um, that would be a more optimistic setting than if it were one that included the land that Israel took in the 67 war, and that now would admit a lot of people who are currently ruled by Hamas, or that's certainly the most powerful political party that would enter politics. That's a somewhat scarier proposition. Do you feel that? Well, the two-state solution is dead. There, um, and Anybody who's been there and has just seen the number of settlements all over the place, it's not viable anymore. So there's no point in talking about if it were this or if it were that. I think also that when people live under oppression and under occupation, they are not able to develop political parties and institutions that are truly representative. There haven't been elections, and this is not really their fault. Remember that the only time there was an election, Hamas won, and they won not because people believe in the ideology. I actually happened to be in Jerusalem with a Melville Society conference before that election, and I met Christian Palestinians who were going to vote for Hamas because they felt 
that at least these people were not corrupt yet. Of course, once they came to power, they became corrupt too. Right. But, but the, the situation there is so artificial and so unhealthy that it hasn't been possible. Well, Fair enough. But this is where my conversations with anti-Zionists get a little frustrating. There's always this optimism that, but it'll be okay. We'll have one state. Palestinians who have voted for Hamas will transfer their allegiances to more democratically minded parties. Institutions will flourish. And ultimately, it will be an Arab Muslim majority country with democratic norms where Jews are very, very safe. That strikes me as a really naive, blithe optimism. I mean, the big question is, what if you're wrong? It could go very, very bad for Jews, couldn't it? Well, and I'm not saying it couldn't. It isn't going badly for lots of people now. I'm not idealizing the current situation. Yeah, but it could go really, really badly for Jews in that world. There's nobody who thinks it's going to be easy. Nobody whose optimism really uh, assumes that everything will be all right. One of the uh, Israeli scholars, Ilan Pape, who has been advocating for a one-state solution, I've heard him speak and I've read him, and uh, he says, you know, if we're lucky, it could. Be be a South Africa-type situation. If we're unlucky, it could be a Syria-type situation. People are very much aware of that. And how it turns out is impossible to predict, but fighting for it to turn out better and putting in place structures, especially maybe intervention by the United Nations, things like that, could help it to turn out better. That's what we need to be doing. As you say, this is not an ideal state. And I don't see any future following the current path, except a garrison state that is more and more of a garrison state that is more and more intolerant of dissent and more and more oppressive. But you think that the state that could be South Africa and could be Syria is a better path to try for than the two-state solution as... I know you say it's dead, but it's as likely now as... The one-state solution, it seems, or as Syria. I mean, it's it's as worth, if we're playing thought experiments here, there are people who say, let's figure out a way toward a two-state solution, even as bleak as that looks, rather than take the chance with the, I mean, there's pretty recent examples of countries that tried to, that sort of dropped their walls and then ended up in civil war, right? I mean, there's not, you know, Syria, of course, all those walls have been breached by Iran and geopolitics and Lebanon doesn't really exist anymore. But then, of course, Serbo-Croatia, I mean, there's, 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 millions of lives that have been lost in the attempt to get people to live peacefully together who are who are bad at it. Or you could turn it around and say millions of lives are lost in ethno-nationalist movements that try to, to push out uh, the minorities and try to um, establish their... Does Israel their seem that bad to you? Millions of lives lost, genocide. It's not my experience of the... And I've been to all around there. That's not my sense of it, that that's the best way forward is into the abyss of merging with the country that's currently Hamas or the, the lands that currently Hamas led and the potential for, I do think there's a potential for a Syria type situation. I'm not just taking your words and twisting and, you know, sort of weaponizing them. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what I would have said. It just seems to me a massive risk with a lot of lives in a land that, yes, is is really troubled right now and really unfair to a lot of people. But I, when I, again, when I talk to anti-Zionists, they say, well, we'll march gaily forward into <laughs> seeing where it goes. And I feel like what those are my cousins. Yes, but... Liter I mean, literally my cousins, but also spiritually my yes. cousins. Yes. I wouldn't want my cousins brought up in a right-wing system of education where they are primed to, to join the army, to see every Arab as an enemy and as a potential terrorist, uh, to be spiritually twisted, as I see it. So, of course, it's the, the situation is very difficult. But ultimately, really, if you don't strive for what is better, 
you end up with worse and worse. And I think that that's the direction that Israel has been going in. Just looking at the trajectory over the last 20 years has been so so eye-opening. And I, I don't see it getting better. So uh, I'm not willing to resign myself to that as the best of bad alternatives. I'm not willing to preclude fighting for something better out of fear that the something better could turn out to be worse than what we have now. So what do you think will happen? I think it depends on us. <laughs> I, th- I think it depends on cutting off American aid and creating conditions where Israel, like white South Africans, will realize that they can't go on in the path that they're on and will, in fact, engage in serious negotiations. And what will ultimately come out of that, we'll see. But I think changing Jewish public opinion, which is what I'm trying to do in this book, trying to show that to be good Jews, we don't have to be Zionists, we don't have to defend Israel right or wrong. I think learning to work in solidarity with Palestinians and with other oppressed groups, that this this is all we can do from here. And this is what we, we must do. I hope that, that this will ultimately bring about the kinds of changes that I advocate. I agree with you that one doesn't have to be a Zionist to be a good Jew or to be a Jew. And of course, history is filled with, you know, most Jews throughout history have not been political statist Zionists, right? We know that until fairly recently. Right. And, exactly. and I think your introduction to the book makes that point really, really well. And most and, and all Jews, Zionists and non, would do well to know how recent and contingent political status Zionism is. Before we go, I want to I want to return. I want to have another go for one moment at your perception of Jewish risk. You know, I'm always mindful of that terrific line in Hannah Arendt's in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, and I'm going to misquote it, where she talks about Jews getting out of the camps and some of them feeling like they wanted to go anywhere in the world where they never had to see another Gentile that the experience of being traumatized by genocide, by hatred, by bigotry, not so different from the experience that oppressed peoples everywhere might face when their lives or well-being are truly at risk, right? Many people felt like it called for a state where they just, the, the, the fundamental promise was, this is your state. And there are other states like that. I mean, I think most countries in the world are in some sense ethnic nation states or religious nation states. I mean, if you look at Japan, for example, and you look at how they construct their immigration policy, it's quite clearly designed to keep a Japanese majority and China is designed to keep a Han Chinese majority. That doesn't make it right. right? And it doesn't make it healthy. I remember I grew up in Japan. Right. No, and it doesn't make it healthy, right? But I think you're wrong about how much anti-Semitism there is in the world. I mean, our best statistics about where America is show that Jews are increasingly and quite robustly being victimized. And year over year, unsurprising in the era of Trump, by the way, certainly the journalism that I've seen and read by good trusted figures from, you know, in Northern Europe and in Western Europe shows that things are getting very, very problematic, or at least that's the felt experience of the people living it, right? I'm not sure who we are to question their felt experience. And again, the liberal cosmopolitan democracies have very poor records of letting these people come. So if Israel ceases to be that place, maybe it turns into a kind of muddling through democracy on the lines of India, for example, right? But ceases to be a place that says Jews can come. Do you just figure, well, between Australia and Canada and America, and if things did get really bad in Japan or Poland, for example, where there are some Jews left, somebody would take them? I mean, where are we kicking the refugee problem to? I think another one of our responsibilities is precisely to fight for 
better immigration laws for everybody, not just for Jews. And we're seeing in the Trump era this effort to get rid of immigrants, to close the door to refugees, and we should be fighting against that with everything we have. And I think that if we do fight against it with everything we have, we will ultimately win. I do believe that the, the majority of the American people are not with this government and are not with the fanatics who went into um, the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue and the, the synagogue in San Diego. They're not. Um, I, I think that there's been a tremendous growth in a feeling of, of solidarity and of welcome for immigrants, uh, be they Muslim or Latino. And so our responsibility is to make the government's policies reflect those views and make all our countries safe places where Jews or anybody else fleeing injustice and terror and hunger and disaster can come. Right, but they're not right now, right? They're not right so, now. I mean, it's just a sort of part of the, the frustration I have is like, if it all happens, right, if we get there on all these fronts, on immigration and on compassion and on tolerance, then at the very least, even though we might have spiritual or emotional Zionist attachments, we could say, well, there's no more need for political statist Zionism, right? But we're nowhere near that. I mean, that's that's sort of like talking about, well, when we cure aging, we won't need nursing home. You know, when we have perfect health, we won't need health care. I mean, it's what world are we talking about? America? I don't see America is getting anywhere near that. Really? You're, you have that in the Trump era, your optimism is we're getting better and better about our welcoming toward immigrants? My optimism is has nothing to do with the government. But when I see these huge demonstrations with people of all ethnicities and religions participating, yes, I do feel that the American people or the majority of the American people don't represent what the Trump government represents. So I can't see advocating for something that is so damaged and so unjust and so oppressive to actually not just Palestinians, although of course they're the, uh, the greatest sufferers, but even look at what's happening to Ethiopian Jews. What kind of refuge has Israel proved to be to them? One of the things that troubles a lot of American Jews and non-Jews about the anti-Zionist movement is that they do feel there's a kind of imbalance, right? They feel there's a sort of obsessive focus on Israel's crimes at the great expense of not focusing, say, on what China does to the Uyghurs or so forth. I mean, there's numerous countries that... In terms of body count, let's put it that way, not to be macabre, right, right. but are, are pretty horrific offenders. Now, on the one hand, I'm against falling into a sort of whataboutism, right? right. We don't want to dismiss crimes or saying, well, so-and-so is worse. On the other hand, you know, I sat with a Unitarian minister once and I said, you've given three sermons in the past year on Israel. Do you ever plan to give a sermon on China's concentration camps? And she said, well, I don't know. What are you talking about? And I said, or what about the human slavery that's still going on in parts of Africa? And she said, well, I don't really know anything about that. And it became pretty clear the only human rights abuses that she was at all interested in or that her community of liberal ministers was having any discourse on was Israel. Is there anything worrisome about that? Well, I have two answers to that. Um, in the first place, Israel is the only country to whom we as taxpayers are giving $3.8 billion a year. So... It's natural right. to focus on that. And we as Americans are directly responsible, 
and are directly implicated. Um, the second answer is that many, many of the people I know, and uh, you know, I'm one of them, uh, Israel was actually the last thing they focused on. I'm a child of the anti-Vietnam War movement, and I was, if I was obsessed with anything in my youth, it was certainly in ending the Vietnam War. You know, then the next cause was ending the war in El Salvador, uh, and many people who are who are my generation, us, uh, this was certainly true of people who are younger often were working on uh, other humanitarian issues and other anti-imperialist causes. And it was really their, their convictions that ultimately led them to this cause because they saw that their silence on this and the exception that they made for, for Israel was really incompatible with their values and their beliefs and their activism on all the other causes that they were committed to and had been fighting for. So I don't agree. I, that that feels like a talking point to me. I think it's I'm, not I, a talking look, Carol, point. Carol, I, I think, I, I'm in this movement. I understand, but I think I named something true that you didn't then talk about. There are definitely people, lots of them, not seven, but thousands, whose interest in foreign affairs and human rights is extremely focused on Israel, who remain fairly uninterested at a visceral level, fairly unmoved by similar discussions about pretty much any other country in the world. That is not a hard person to find. You've been in meetings with lots of these people. And to say, oh, no, no, they all went through a series of other progressive issues before they arrived to Israel might in some sense be true. But in terms of their interest in which countries are human rights abusers, they viscerally feel that Israel is the world's leading problem. That doesn't mean that they aren't right on lots of facts, but I'm naming something true about a kind of obsession. And I see it a lot. Uh, see, your book is filled with Jews who I feel like would have a natural interest in this issue. Like the answer you could certainly give that I would buy is, well, but these are Jews. Of course they care, but they feel implicated. But what about Gentiles who literally just don't care about human rights abuses in most other countries? Well, That's a lot of yes. people. And if I'm not going to believe you if you say- Those people- if they exist, should, if they should, exist, should or when when you find them, let's say, yeah. should certainly be called out and uh, encouraged to broaden their lens. Uh, again, you know, I work with some of these people. One of the people I admire very much is the Reverend Graylin Hagler, leader of an African American church. I find him on everything. I mean, he's fighting for uh, the the rights of airport workers, um, fighting for restaurant workers in D.C. Bill Fletcher, the first person who interviewed me who has a long history of progressive anti-imperialist studies and work, uh, who interviews people on these issues all the time. So certainly people who only care about this. We have a name for them. Uh, they're called progressive only on Palestine or poops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. Yes, they, they should be called out. But they're not a majority. Uh, they're not typical of the anti-Zionist movement. And you're not meeting the, the other kind of people. I don't know. I mean, no one ever raises... I spend a lot of time in progressive spaces. I've yet to meet anyone for whom China's treatment of the Uyghurs is their issue. And I could name hundreds of people in my own email account for whom Israel's the issue. Something's off. China's treatment of the Uyghurs has not been an issue, but certainly there was a huge pro-Tibetan movement for a long, long time. Well, yeah, because the celebrities were into that. And because of the Dalai Lama. I mean, yes, there was. I'm not yes. I'm not diminishing it, right? But that had its yes. fashionable moment yes. and then it certainly China's treatment of the Uyghurs is abhorrent and Or we the political be... prisoners in Cuba, right? I mean, or Castro's treatment of homosexuals. Or I mean one could go there's dozens of these things. I never meet anyone who cares on the left. 
Uh, I'm not saying they don't exist, and I'm not saying they wouldn't, in theory, agree. But the fact that it doesn't move them viscerally, whereas the offenses, the real offenses of the Jewish state seem to so quickly move some people viscerally, is uncomfortable for some people. It's uncomfortable for me. It makes it hard for me to identify with with a lot of the people criticizing Israel because I don't get the sense that they're generally moved by human rights. I get the sense that there's something they attach to about this particular country and critique. No ethnic group wants to be obsessed over, right? I mean, black on black crime is real, right? But what would we think of a politician whose major issue was always talking about black on black crime? We decide there was something sort of racist about that, right? Sure. But I don't, again, I don't think it's a, a good analogy. Um, I can certainly agree with you. We can certainly agree that people should have a a broader human rights focus that includes everybody. And, you know, if there were a movement for, you know, to call out China on its treatment of the Uyghurs, you know, certainly a lot of us should be involved in it. I don't deny that. How about that. communist Cuba's refusal to hold elections? I think that your idea of what goes on in Cuba is actually quite influenced by uh, a lot of propaganda. I've been there, and I was actually very impressed by the level of democracy there. And you brought up the treatment of homosexuals, which was certainly bad. But now they've done a 180-degree turn, and they actually uh, not only preach tolerance of homosexuality, they actually, the, the, the Cuban government pays for sex changes for people, just as they pay for any other uh, kind of medical thing that people want. I just said they should hold elections. <laughs> I said they should do what you want Israel to do, Let, hold elections which everyone can vote for parties. That'd be good, right? There, yes, they do have. They they do actually have elections. They're not, you know, the same type of elections as here. But I know that when they were debating, for instance, opening up um, the economy, that on every level of the society, people were debating that and talking about it and offering their ideas to uh, leaders who were taking them into consideration. So I think if we didn't have a, a U.S. embargo and if we didn't have the U.S. constantly threatening Cuba, probably they would have a much more democratic system than they do have. And I would be in favor of that. Um, your book is Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. What other books should people go read to understand the non or anti-Zionist point of view? I've just been reading a new book that, that came out called Days of Awe, uh, Atalia Omer's Days of Awe. She is uh, an Israeli who came to the U.S. Uh, and has made her life here. And she's become a member of Brant Rosen's congregation. And the book kind of goes further than mine in, in that instead of just collecting the voices of these people, she analyzes them using social movement theory. She interviews them. And it's, it's a wonderful book. It's I, very powerful. And I recommend it highly. If people want to find out more about your work or your book, is there a website they should go to? Oh, yes. I do, in fact, have a website. It's reclaimingjudaismfromzionism.com. It has bios of the contributors. It has lists of synagogues that, that wanted to be listed. Mm -hmm. It has uh, lists of organizations that people can join if they want to become active on this. Carolyn Karsher, she's the editor of Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. It was published by Olive Branch Press. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This was a very stimulating conversation.
time for Mazel Tovs. This one comes in from Alex Wall, who you heard last year about the Jewish prisoner Sneaky. She says, I got word that Sneaky signed his exit papers a few hours ago. He is scheduled to be released most likely Thursday. Amazingly, I met him for the first time on January 14, 2018, and j- today is January 14, 2020. It's also not lost on me that Sneaky is what took me from being an unorthodox listener to a guest to now soon to be a correspondent. So it is timely that it is happening right now. So Mazel Tov to Sneaky. We are excited to see you on the outside. And Mazel Tov to Alex Wall, who's become a real part of the, the Unorthodox family. We'll be hearing some more produced pieces from her this year. I also want to give a shout out. Sally Goldstein Zilberstein, who is in the Facebook group, she posted this. I don't know if she's okay with me she's reading it. She's a double it. threat. She's a Goldstein amazing. and a Zilberstein. She's great. My daughter and her Dominican husband got married at a small beach resort in the Dominican Republic. The resort already had poles out by the beach. My daughter got fabric, which they placed over the top and wrapped around the legs. Then we got vines off the beach and wrapped them around the poles. We had our chuppah. The bride and groom were barefoot on the beach and my son-in-law forgot a shoe. So my ex-husband threw him one to break the glass. The groom and his family are not Jewish and they don't speak English. They were married by a judge, translated by my daughter's friend, born in Spain and living in the Dominican Republic. Between the salsa and bahada dancing, we threw in a hora. No one minded the Jewish touches because they were important to the bride and our family. It was a civil ceremony, so no religion. The service was beautiful. Everyone had a great time because the room was full of love. Don't worry about what other people think. Do what makes you happy, and that will make everyone that loves you happy. This is uh, sort of in response to the person who wrote in asking about putting uh, Jewish touches on a non-religious ceremony. So I wanted to shout out Sally Goldstein-Zilverstein and her daughter. Mazel and her to the, new to the bride and groom. I have a personal shout out to Duke student Spencer Kaplan. He runs the inspiringly named weekly newsletter, News of the Jews. Ah, It's, it's great. My favorite section of it is the Israeli election update. And it says, does Israel have a government yet? Yep. Nope. And then every week it just says no. Um, so you guys can sign up for that. You just email newsofthejews at gmail.com. It is completely unrelated, but, you know, we, just, su- we support him. It's an address we should have owned, but yeah. we love you, Spencer, and <laughs> we, we believe to, in you. We forgot to, like, uh, domain squad. I would like to extend a very warm and hearty Muslim to my own rabbi, Rabbi David Ingber from Romemu, a vibrant congregation on Manhattan's Upper West Side, who this week delivered what I thought was a particularly moving and wonderful sermon that really reaffirmed why... Despite all the problems we might have with the Jewish community, with Israel, with America, we still, as he said, fly our fabulously flawed flags and are (laughs) proud of our family no matter what. It was a great sermon on Jewish identity and it's important and the importance of Jewish pride. And rock on, Rabbi Engber. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Have you rated us on iTunes? Would you do that right now? Here, I'll wait. Go do it really quickly. Wow, that was quick. I hope you gave us five stars. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email Josh Cross, that's J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. You should be wearing unorthodox stuff. You know, it solves all your fashion problems. You don't have to spend a lot of time in your closet in the morning poking around. If you just know that you're throwing on the unorthodox sweatshirt, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. I forgot to submit a rabbinic supervision this week, and I'm doing this early. I'm taping ahead of time. So Josh Crossley, Alibovitz, or Stephanie Butnick, who is the rabbinic supervision by? It is by... Student Rabbi Shira Kraus of B'nai Israel Synagogue in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Thank you, whoever said that. We come to you from Argo Studios, which did not get the New York Times endorsement for president. Shalom, friends. <laughs>